our job as the parent is always to be curious, is always to be like, what am I seeing here? What am I feeling? You know, our our lens that we want to look through is that it's actually my child wants to feel connected to me and they want to cooperate, but sometimes stuff gets in the way. And our job is to be super curious as to what may be in the way and what can we bring to help them move that. That was Lael Stone. I'm Rich Bolas and this is the Dad Mindset Show. This episode, I have the pleasure of talking with educator, author, mother and parenting counsellor Lael Stone, who has been working with families for over 20 years. She's also the co-creator of Woodline Primary School, an innovative new school based on emotional well-being and connection. Her TED Talk on how to raise emotionally intelligent children has been watched over 1.6 million times, and what she is doing for parents all over the world is, quite frankly, remarkable. I hope you take away from this chat with Lael as much as I did. Lael Stone, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Now, Lael, if you're at a, a cocktail party, or I don't know whether people actually go to those things anymore, but a party, how would you actually introduce yourself and, and tell someone what it is you do? Uh, well, I usually say I'm an educator, an author, and a speaker, uh, which means that um, from the education part, I actually built a school. I set up with uh, my lovely co-partner Mel a few years ago called Woodline Primary, which is just in series out of Geelong here, and it's a school based around emotional intelligence. So I've spent the last 20 years as an educator. I started as a childbirth educator many, many years ago and then moved into parenting and then ended up teaching sex ed to teens for about five years. So that's the education part. Uh, I'm an author, so I've written a book, Raising Resilient and Compassionate Children, um, with my co-author, Marion Rose, and I'm in the midst of writing my second book at the moment, which is very exciting, and a speaker. So I do a lot of public speaking. I work with the Resilience Project, and I travel around Australia doing talks on raising resilient kids, and I also do a lot of talks in um, schools and for even in corporate spaces around how we can own all our stories and our imprints and who we are in order to be the best version of ourselves. So they're kind of the main things I do. And I'm also a mum, which is probably my most important job. Um, but my kids are a big, beautiful humans now. So I have a 23-year-old, a 20-year-old and a 15-year-old daughter. Wow. So, yeah. so what do you do in your spare time? Yeah. <laughs> I, I sit down and look out the window these days. <laughs> Spare time for me is is actually just being pretty still and quiet now. I um I look I absolutely love what I do. I feel really blessed that I get to do things I'm really passionate about. And so a lot of the time it actually doesn't feel like work for me. Like I I um it, it feels exciting because I'm creating stuff and I'm getting to talk about, you know, things that I feel really passionate about. So it never feels so much like work. And that's probably one of the challenges too, where I, my husband will often remind me to go, you need to actually stop or you need to go for a walk or you need to do some stuff because it, it fills me up. It feels amazing. So I think finding the balance is my challenge at the moment. <laughs> now, you mentioned imprints and it's a big part of the book as well. So what exactly are imprints and why are they important, Lil? Yeah. So for me, I explain an imprint as a story or belief system that we took on board when we were children that we believed to be true. So as children, we come into this world and right from the very beginning, we are watching and observing how the world works. And we look through the lens of that family unit or the caregivers that we were raised by. And so, you know, the messages that we receive around things like 
expressing our feelings or around trust or around money or around relationships, intimacy. I mean, pick a thing. Like it's we're modelled stuff all the time. And so as children, we are constantly watching and feeling what um, what the tone is or what the pulse is within our relationship, within the family dynamic. And so what we observe as children, we often take on to be true. And then what happens is we carry those belief systems and stories as we grow up and we often keep looking for evidence of how those stories and belief systems are true. So, for example, let's just say that as a kid you had a lot of energy and feelings and and you kept being told, you're too loud, be quiet, like, gosh, why are you so big? Can't you just be good like your sister? Or, you know, why don't you just calm down? You know, the imprint we often get is it's actually not okay for me to be big. It's not okay for me to express my feelings. You know, I get told off all the time for being too much. And so that's a story and imprint that we take on. And then we can often travel through life looking for more evidence that that's true. So perhaps we go to a party when we're a teenager and we laugh really loud and someone looks at us and goes, God, you're so loud. And all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, yep, that's, that's, that's more more evidence, you know, of that's the way I am. As opposed to someone else might be standing there going, God, I love your laugh. It's so fantastic. You know, you're just such a fun person to be around. But we're more hardwired to listen to the bias. We're more hardwired to listen to the negative and the story. So we carry that story with us. And a lot of my work around imprints with adults is looking at the stories we believe to be true as children and whether they serve us or not. Because a lot of the stories don't serve us. Some are brilliant imprints that we carry forward. You know, perhaps you grew up in a family where um, your, your family is very charitable and they really like to take care of people and they had a lot of compassion and you watch that and that's actually become a beautiful imprint around how we take care of other humans. And so that's something that's amazing and wonderful and works for you, you know, but then there's a whole lot that we take on board as children that we still believe to be true that actually don't serve us. And those imprints can keep us small. They can um, keep us really protecting our hearts and not connecting. They can stop us from being creative and our wonderful, fabulous, you know, true authentic selves. There's, there's so much in it. And I think, what I find with adults is a lot of the people I've worked with for a really long time are usually parents and they come to me with stuff around their kids and we begin to see how the imprint of their childhood affects how they parent and how they live their life. And it's not until I think we understand those stories and start working through them can we begin to change them to then step into who we do want to be. So how do you actually begin to unpack that? Yeah. So, well, my first thing is usually go towards what scares you or go towards what annoys you. So whether it's, um, whether, you know, let's just say that you, you know, you've always wanted to be an artist, right? And, but you grew up in a family where the message you got was you must do something safe, right? So become an accountant or become, you know, a I don't know, receptionist or become whatever, nothing, there's nothing wrong with those jobs, right? But just something that is safe, you, you're always going to get paid, you know, that's, it's a really about practical. You grew up in a family that was all about, you must make sure, you know, that there's enough and you don't go and follow these creative whims because that's reckless. And that was the message you received. So because we are so hardwired to belong in our family and because we're so hardwired for attachment and approval, we go, okay, well, that's, that's what I should do because that's what a responsible adult does. Yet there might be a part of you that is, I've always wanted to paint, right? And and yet, and that's what I love doing. It makes my heart sing. Yet the message we keep getting is, no, 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 you you don't do that. That's frivolous. Like you, you be practical. 
So we can often begin to understand where our imprints come from because we can look at what we desire and what we don't have. We can look at what we feel frustrated or terrified around. We can look at anywhere where there is a discomfort and we can start to ask ourselves the questions, well, what do I make this mean? Right. So if you are the person that really wants to be the artist and you have this longing to paint and and you feel like every time I go to do it, then you go, oh, no, but I shouldn't because maybe people won't approve of me or I shouldn't because it might not be good enough. Like, you know, maybe you pl- you paint in secret and then someone sees your work and goes, it's amazing, you should have an exhibition. And you're like, no, 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 because my, my work isn't good enough and people might laugh at me. Like there's the juice to lean into. Because there there we can actually ask the question, what am I making this mean here? Well, we've got a story that says I'm not good enough and I can't do this and people won't take me seriously. And so then we can start to unpack and go, all right, well, where where does that story come from? Where do I make that mean? And you can start to, I often do it by inviting people to go, all right, what is the feeling associated with this? Well, the feeling is, People might laugh at me or I might be judged or I'm not good enough. And I'm like, okay, cool. So let's look at where did you first feel that feeling? Like where do you remember that feeling from? Because it's it won't be a new feeling. It'll be something that you've known for a long time. And as we start to trace back a bit, we can go back into that place that goes, oh, you know, I remember saying that I wanted to be an artist when I was six and perhaps my dad laughed at me and went, that's not a real job, don't be ridiculous. And that was the first time we went, oh, maybe I shouldn't do that. And then we begin to to recollect, you know, recollect the feelings of that's not okay, it's unsafe to follow that path. And so we start to realise where the story comes from. And part of, I guess, my work is always looking at, all right, it's just a story and it's what we took on board as a child and it doesn't necessarily mean it's true, but through the eyes of the child, it it was very, very real for us. And when we begin to understand where the story is, that's when we can start to actually work with it. So we can then actually start to ask the questions, all right, well, what would I want it to look like? Like what would feel good for me? And it might be like, well, I just... I just want to spend half my time painting because I love it. And so we're like, okay, so what would happen if you do that? And so then often what can come up is, well, what if I'm not good enough or people might laugh at me or I won't earn enough money or all the stories that we have around it. And then we go, okay, so they're just stories too. What do you want it to look like? And, and what would it be to challenge that story and that narrative? And what would be one action or one step you can take to start looking for evidence that that doesn't have to be true anymore? And as we start to understand the story, as we start to heal or feel what we need to around where those stories came from, and then we start to look to the future of what we do want and start taking steps towards it, it's where we begin to change those imprints and stories to be what we do want them to be. Because it's just it's just the story we've taught ourselves in our mind. And it can, you know, it can have tight grip on you. I know this. I know the stories can can impact you. Like I've I've done this nearly in all aspects of my life around the imprints and stories that haven't worked for me or haven't have kept me stuck. And it is tricky to sometimes let it go and change the story. But when we begin to be willing to do it, that's when we start to see the changes. When you were saying that, Leo, um, I was sort of recollecting the times when I'd been triggered as a parent. And, and when you said, oh, yeah, think of the times when you feel uncomfortable or there's like big feelings. I was like, oh, my gosh, getting flashbacks here. <laughs> Those, and, and it is. It can be so triggering sometimes. Absolutely. Parenting is like just the dynamite of this, right? Because we have these beautiful children that we love. But becoming a parent, we have to get really comfortable with powerlessness and being out of control because 
Not because we want our beautiful little two-year-old to do exactly what we say. They're hardwired not to. And and even though we want our six-year-old to behave in this way, they may not. You know, our children come along to mirror back to us all the stories and wounds that we need to uh, to work with. You know, that's their job. Their job is to go, hey, mum, dad, I can see you've got this story here and I don't actually want you to pass that on to me. So I am going to stand here and I'm going to, Push those buttons that activate that story, and it's your job to do the work. <laughs> it's your job to take that story and go, yeah, okay, I need to look at this. And our children are the most beautiful barometers of that. They are the best teachers we have because you know they actually what they deeply want inside is to be free to be who they need to be. Now they often can't do that if we've got all our own baggage that we're carrying around and that we don't want to deal with. Well, we unconsciously place it on their shoulders. And our kids are going, no, that's not mine to carry. So I'm going to push back on certain ways and I'm going to behave in other ways to hopefully get you to have enough insight into see what this is about. And that that is their beautiful job, you know, to to mirror back for us to be the best version of we who we can be so they can be the best version of them. So our imprints tie into that, you know, if we have an imprint that it wasn't safe to cry or that it's not okay to be angry, then when our children cry or get angry, then odds are we're going to be triggered and we're going to try and shut it down or we're going to judge it or we're going to try to fix it so that they don't feel it because what will come up for us is it's not safe to have feelings. It's not okay. You know, when I was younger and and perhaps I cried or I got angry, then maybe I was smacked and then that felt very dangerous. And so now that part of me is still here in this adult body and so every Every time my child cries or or they act in this way, then those parts of me are going to flare up again. And so that that is always the invitation of our children to uh, to help us tune into well, what am I carrying that I don't need anymore, or what am I carrying that isn't going to serve them? Yeah, and they're so finely attuned to reading us as well. So we can't even it's probably even worse when we say one thing, but they can sense something else as well. Yeah, uh, and I, I think, you know, we could be lying to ourselves and not know it, but we can't <laughs> lie to kids in the sense Why? of, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. You know, every other cue is screaming the opposite, but yeah. then what does that tell them? And I, I love the way you sort of went through that in the book as well. Mm. Well, I think that's such a beautiful point you bring up because what that tells them is their gut instinct is saying, there's something off with mum or dad. And so I'm going to go and check in with them. Are you okay? Now, when we say I'm fine and we're not, the message our children get is, well, maybe I was wrong, right? Because the adult who we often default to as being right is telling me something different. And so maybe my gut instinct's wrong. So what often happens is children then learn to distrust their gut instinct. They learn to distrust what they're feeling because they sense one thing and then the adult tells them something different. And so it's a really powerful thing for us as adults that when our child does come up to us and say, are you okay, to pause for a minute and go, am I okay? Now, again, when we look at the imprints we've had, we may have been imprinted to just be happy all the time, just be positive, you know, don't don't share your dirty laundry with anyone and don't do this and don't do that. And so, again, we might carry a story that says, no, just put on a mask all the time and be fine. And so our children are asking us about that and then we might respond with that same imprint instead of actually saying, 
you know what, I feel really sad today. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to call a friend or I might go do some yoga or I might journal. And, um, and that often is what makes me feel better, but thanks for checking in, buddy. It's, you know, I'm okay. My sad is mine and I can move it. I mean, that is a really powerful thing to do because in that moment, the child actually gets validation that says, you know what, your gut is right, which is good. And what you are also modeling is I am responsible for my own feelings because children are often hardwired to when they sense something is off to make it mean that it's their fault or to take that on board. It's their responsibility. So it's really important that when our children tune into us or they're asking us that we can be as truthful as we can and saying things to them like, sweetheart, this is mine and I can take care of it and it's, you know, it's not your fault, it's not your responsibility, I can take care of my own needs. You know, that's a really powerful thing that we can share with our children so that they then don't feel responsible for taking care of us. Yeah, and I love the examples that you gave as well around sort of, but could you give me a hand like, let's have a pillow fight or something to help me work through this or and, and the idea of moving th- this feeling through our bodies I mean, that's something that I'd never come across and certainly not had modeled to me. And just having, just hearing those sort of anecdotes of, you know, oh, you know, I've got this, yeah, I'm feeling a bit of, I think one of your examples was, you know, I've just got, I'm feeling really angry. So I'm just going to go put on some like rage music and and, like dance this out and just demonstrating and, and modeling that sort of behavior and how to actually work through feelings. For your yes. children is massive. It is so massive, and I love that you bring that up, Rich, because as you say, that key point there is that I was never shown how to do this, right? I was never modeled what healthy anger looks like. And I think that is one of the most powerful things we can do. If if we want our children to be empathetic humans, if we want them to know how to navigate frustration and anger, if we want them to be comfortable with their own tears and upset, well, we have to show them healthy ways of how to do that because they're always watching, right? And again, if we think about the imprints that we are passing on to our own children, you know, what are we modeling to them around these things? So when we can demonstrate in a healthy way how we move our feelings, you are gifting your children so much because you are saying hey it's okay to be mad it's not okay to project it onto someone else and it's not okay to throw stuff at the window but it's okay to go outside and yell at the trees and it's okay to you know snap some sticks and it's okay to have a pillow fight and it's okay to to um you know angry rage dance like you know we have to give our children healthy ways of how we how we can feel and express our feelings because otherwise they watch us and they go, oh, when you're upset, you just pick up your phone and you just sit there and you check out for an hour, right? Or you just eat all the chocolate or you, you know, you just bottle up inside and then you explode when something doesn't go the way you want it to. So these are such beautiful uh, invitations to think about, well, not only helping ourselves move feelings in a healthy way, but what we're modeling to our kids as well. Yeah, I've got to totally dial back my uh, chocolate consumption because that's out of control. I'm I'm not quite sure what that is, but there's there's an opportunity for me to uh, dig in there. Um, Here's a little piece of that, right? We, a we piece also, of chocolate? <laughs> awesome. We also suppress our feelings at some point, right, because we're all human and because, we're, we're, you know, like sometimes life is really hard and we're going to be like, you know what, I'm just going to binge watch this and that's what I'm doing. But the difference between doing it consciously and unconsciously is really important. So we can say, 
you know what, I'm, I'm got a whole lot of stuff going on with me. So I am so aware that I'm just eating all the chocolate at the moment. I'm doing that because I'm, I'm just not feeling good. So there's a difference between it when our intentions there, when we do it unconsciously and we're doing it with a sense of avoiding, as opposed to, yep, I know I'm totally numbing out and I'm going to be kind and gentle myself and I'm not going to beat myself up. I'm going to be compassionate. When we have an intention with it, it's very different the way it lands in our body than it does when we're unconscious or when we're, we beat ourselves up around it. So it, even we will still do it, you know, like my favorite repression is to binge watch series on Netflix. Like I get excited if I can find like five seasons of a show. I'm like, yes. <laughs> So much here I can just numb out on. That's my go-to. But, yeah, I'll also own it. I'm like, life feels big and overwhelming, so I'm just going to check out for a bit and I'm consciously doing it. And I also know that I'll come back to feeling when I'm ready. But we're not judging ourselves. We're just being aware of what we're doing. And that's a beautiful thing. And I've I've even watched that with my own children over the years, and especially if they got into the teenage years, when something big's gone on, they'll come up and I'll be like, you okay, honey? And then they'll say to me, you know what? I'm not really, so I'm just going to go eat my feelings for half an hour and then we'll laugh. (laughs) Okay, well, be kind to yourself and when you're ready, I'm here to talk and they're like, yeah, you know, and they do it and then they'll come back and talk and then they'll lean into it when they're ready. So there's there's no judgment there. There's a lot of compassion. There's a lot of connection still within that place of we're human and life sometimes feels really big and hard and sometimes we just all need to check out and, and that is okay. It's when we're checking out more than we're being present, that's that's when it becomes an issue. Yeah, and I love that word there that you threw in judgment because I think certainly as young parents, there's so much judgment going on. I mean, because there's so much, it feels like such a high pressure situation, especially when you're in a public setting. I don't know whether this was just me or not, but like letting go of that was probably one of the biggest turning points in my parenting journey. You know, that idea that I was being judged and I had to sort of perform and we had to have like perfectly behaved children and everything. And it was a ridiculously unrealistic expectation. It caused so much strife. And and I think it was the one of the best things I ever dropped. That's amazing. I love I love that you can that you've dropped it and you can see it because mm. you're exactly right. We so have this pressure of how people perceive us and we're enough if people like us or if we look like we're doing a good job or we look the right way or we drive the right car you know so much of our perception of ourselves is based on what other people believe or think and children are so excellent at blowing that up for us right and and it will be it'll be the time when your in-laws are over or you're trying to you know keep it together because they're they're very judgy and the next minute your child loses it and you're like not in front of them And, you know, and it's like the time when you want your kids to be well-behaved the most is usually when they're like, let me just blow this up for you. They can smell it a mile off, can't they? They're like, oh, this is one of those really high-octane moments that you want want me to perform. I can perform. Yeah, totally. And I think it's, it's beautiful when we can acknowledge that within ourselves and drop into our hearts and go, actually, what's important here? Like, what's needed in this moment? And what's needed in this moment is my child's like, you actually need to connect with me or, you know, I am more important than what a whole group of strangers think. And that's really hard to shake off because we're so hardwired, particularly 
most of our generation that was brought up in this behaviorism paradigm to constantly be searching for approval. Like that's that's a driving factor for most of us. So when our children reflect this back to us, it can feel so deeply uncomfortable and confronting. But I love, as you say, when you can learn to drop that and actually go, you know what, the little person in front of me is what's important here. I'm going to tune out what's going on around me and I'm going to connect in with them and I'm going to just love them and be with them even in their messiest state then you know I think we are doing an incredible job it's not easy to do but again it sets up a really powerful imprint in our children that says hey you're not too big for me and you are what's important in my world and and I think that is such a powerful thing that we can come to and it's not easy so we've got to be kind and compassionate to ourselves around it but it's something that I think our children test us on inevitably at some point and usually when we're the most tired but I think the the one thing that when you when you talk about compassion as well ella i love the way it's having the compassion to see beneath the behavior as well and that was like a, a just a gold mine for me it's like oh my gosh you know i've been viewing this completely wrong here is a wonderful lens to actually be able to look through and go huh what what is what is actually underneath this and i think i just stopped at the cognitive level yes. and it was like I've told Will he needs to clean his teeth. I've explained why he needs to clean his teeth. But every night we're having this argument about, you know, why is there such a delay here? You know, this isn't rocket science. I can draw you a picture of why you've got to do this. <laughs> and and it just wasn't working. But, you know, when I heard you talk, oh, well, I mean, can you explain some of the reasons why children do yeah. delay bedtime and things yeah. like that? Yeah, I think it's such a, and I love that you say that too, it's such a key piece for us to understand as adults that all behavior is communicating something so what we see on the external state is a reflection of what's going on internally and when you know again I think I come back to most of us were brought up in a behaviorism paradigm where we were either good or bad and when you're good you get energy and connection and reward and when you're bad we're going to take something away from you and there's nothing in between there it's you know the the story we've got is when a child is bad or they're not agreeing it's because there's something wrong with them and we need to punish them or discipline them in order to be good right that's that's how most of us were brought up yet when we dig a bit deeper and we begin to understand that there is always a reason for behavior always so to break it down you know and one of the things i often talk about is that children are either in balance or out of balance so when a child's in balance they're feeling pretty good they're connected in their bodies they're feeling relaxed you'll hear them singing in their bedroom they'll come out and play with their sibling kindly you know you'll ask them to do something and they usually do it we see that the child, you know, their nervous system's calm, they're feeling connected to us. Children are mostly cooperative when they're feeling really connected. When a child is out of balance, it's when we see them push back on a lot of stuff. It's when they won't listen to us. It's when they're picking fights with their siblings. It's when there's a whole lot of stuff going on inside them that they're like, I'm trying to find my way back into balance. And they're trying to find ways to do that. So when we kind of come back to well, what are some of the reasons why kids can be out of balance? You know, I mean, one of the first reasons which we, we all kind of know on some level is there's a need, right? Which is they're hungry or they're tired or they need some assistance with building this Lego tower because it's not working the way they want or you know we meet that need and then usually they feel okay right so then they're back in balance the second piece which i think is really important which we miss out on a lot is that there's a great need for information which means for some children they have to understand the why behind things or they have to have the information in order to help them feel safe and settled so it might be you know we're going to 
We're going to the park to make these friends, right? Now, some children will be like, but who's going to be there and how long will we be there for and what are we going to eat and where is the toilet? And there's a great need for information in order to help them feel safe. Now, as adults, we're like, it's fine. Don't worry about it. But that causes stresses in their bodies and then they're feeling unsure and then they don't want to come. And so that's not all children, but some children who need information make a massive difference. Now, I love that you brought up when you say to your, your child, you know, we've got to brush your teeth because we're going to bed. You are giving them the information, but the information Information isn't the piece they need to help them do what we need to do, right? So the third reason why children can often have these big feelings is because there can be a buildup of stress and tension in their bodies or there can be trauma stories that are sticking there that are making them not want to cooperate but also that are trying to be moved and shifted from their bodies. So I often explain it. Like let's just imagine a a four-year-old, you know, four-year-old's, you know, it's pretty hard being a four-year-old. You get told what to do all day, right? Now, it's <laughs> pretty cool because you get to play a lot. But from the moment you wake up, you've been told to get dressed and you need to eat this and then we're going to kinder today and then we get dropped off at kinder and even though kinder feels good, you know, it still feels hard separating from a parent and then you're building this cool thing at kinder and someone walks past and kicks it over and then you get upset but people tell you not to cry and then, and then you know, everyone else is playing and they're not including you in the game and that feels really, really hard and then you get to lunchtime and you open your lunchbox and mum's packed something that you don't even like to eat and that feels upsetting and, and throughout the day there's all these beautiful little micro traumas that happen or upsets and they build in his little body and then when you get home and you know you cut their toast the wrong way or give them the wrong colored cup or or you know their sister has more ice cream than them and all of a sudden those feelings come pouring out because all that build up and tension has just reached a tipping point in their body and that's one of the reasons why kids can have a lot of big feelings over really small ridiculous things what we deem as ridiculous <laughs> i was going to say there's a lot of adults <laughs> like i can relate to that as well <laughs> I often tell that story and then go, let's just imagine you're an adult now and I tell the adult version of that and everyone's like, oh, yeah, that's me all the time, right? And our children are still learning how to navigate those big feelings and upsets. You know, a four-year-old is not emotionally aware enough to be able to stand in the kitchen and go, mum, I did not want you to cut my sandwich that way. You know, it's really upset me and I've had a very hard day because people haven't listened to me and someone knocked over my tower and it's very hard to say goodbye to you and you know, I think we think that children should have the emotional intelligence to be able to speak that. And we as adults, as you're saying, often don't have the ability or capabilities to speak that because we get all stuck in our stuff, right? And we just project and yell. So when we're coming back to why there's always a reason behind the behavior, our job as a parent is to be curious. It's to constantly be curious and to watching our kids with an element of curiosity to go, hmm, I wonder what's going on there. So when we say to our child, come on, it's time to go brush your teeth, and they're like, they just don't respond to you. And then you ask them again, mate, it's time to go brush your teeth. And they're like, nah, you know, because they're busy playing Lego. We can then ask them a third or fourth time and start to yell and get angry because they're not listening to us. Or we can take a breath and we go, okay, he's my little four-year-old in front of me. He actually doesn't care about brushing his teeth. It's not high priority for him. That's my expectation. So what does he need here? Well, maybe he needs some connection in order to be able to listen. So I'm going to go over and I'm going to put my hand on his back and I'm going to go, what are you building, mate? And he's going to be like, I'm building this tower and it's this and that. And we go, yeah, that looks amazing. Tell me more about it. And for two or three minutes, we connect in with him while he tells us about this amazing Lego tower that he's building. And then when we've got his presence and attention, we say, hey, you know what, buddy? We're going to start getting ready for bed. I'm going to brush our teeth. Do you want to put the Lego tower up on the shelf? Should we take it to the bathroom with us? Do you want to jump on my back and we'll fly to the bathroom? 
like in that moment we've offered him connection and one of the most powerful things for children is connection they can't often refuse connection and particularly if it's fun connection right (laughs) in that moment where we offer some fun and connection our children are often more likely and more willing to cooperate with what we're doing now if a child still says no and we're still getting some pushback and often again if there's a whole lot of stresses and tension in their body we may not get cooperation and that's sometimes where we need to set a really loving boundary which doesn't look like yelling and i've told you you know if you don't brush your teeth now there's no stories or it's not when we're hot and heated it comes from a calm place where we say sweetheart i really know you want to keep building your lego but it's actually time to brush your teeth now so you can walk with me to the bathroom if you want or otherwise i'm going to pick you up and we're going to go brush your teeth now if your child has got a whole lot of feelings going on they will probably protest that and they might need to cry and they might need to get upset and often what they're then doing is they're offloading all those tensions of the day that they may be carrying it's very hard for a child to cooperate when they've got a big heavy backpack of feelings going on so our job as the parent is always to be curious is always to be like what am I seeing here? What am I feeling? You know, our our lens that we want to look through is that it's actually my child wants to feel connected to me and they want to cooperate, but sometimes stuff gets in the way. And our job is to be super curious as to what may be in the way and what can we bring to help them move that. Yeah, I, I totally hear that, Lael. And I think knowing that you've got older kids as well, how did that change when you went through the sort of teenage phase of that? So it's it's interesting. The same actual philosophies apply. It just looks a bit different. So when I was asking my teen to do something and they were like complaining about it or, yeah, I'll do it, but they wouldn't do it, I, again, I would get curious and go, all right, what's going on here? Is there something that's too big in their world that's stopping them from doing that? Are my expectations too high because they've just been at school all day and they're feeling really stressed and overwhelmed and what they actually need is a bit of loving and some connection before I ask them to fold the washing or make dinner or those kind of things. So I was always curious and tuning into where they're at and where their bodies are at because what I began to learn is that when my kids were imbalanced, even as teens, then usually they're pretty cooperative and usually they were pretty calm and they were pretty open and they were pretty loving and they're actually pretty kind to each other. But when some big stuff has gone on, and I think every parent knows this, and, and especially as teenagers, you know if you've got an unhappy 14-year-old, they walk into the room and their energy is very loud. Right? Yeah. And, and we were like, what's wrong? And they're like, nothing. And, you know, there becomes this dance of like trying to unpack what's going on. What's needed in that moment is not 20 questions to drill them as to what's happening because often, you know, some te- teenagers hold their cards pretty close to their chest. What I see in that moment is they need safety in order for them to be able to open up about what's going on. So with teenagers, I'm a big fan, and I talk about this sometimes, I'm a big fan of the snack plate. <laughs> Just like my teenagers come home, they'd be grumpy, and I'd be like, oof, something's gone on, and then maybe they're not ready to talk about it yet. And so I'd be like, do you want a snack plate? And they'd be like, yes. (laughs) So I'm going to make you some food. I'm going to love on you just a little bit because I can see that there's something here for you. So sometimes that's just I'm going to give them a cuddle. Sometimes I'm just going to be a bit silly and playful with them. Sometimes I'm going to make them some food and just give them some love. Um, It was, again, different things at different times and depending on which child it was for me, like all my three kids are really different, so it's depending who it was. But in those moments I was trying to meet them where they're at without pushing my agenda but actually bringing in some love. And then I would often say, look, I can see something's going on and I'm here to talk when you're ready. 
And so even that invitation to say, hey, I'm here, um, would be I'm not going to push you and I also know and I'm seeing where you're at and I'm just going to bring some love to you, then they would often soften in their own time to come and talk about what's going on. Now, sometimes, you know, you might get teenagers who when they've got a whole lot of feelings going on, the way that they're trying to move that is to come at you a bit, is to, you know, be a bit rude or be a bit judgy or push up against you. I remember one day I was sitting in my bedroom and my daughter, maybe she was 13 at the time, she walked past my room and she basically got both her fingers and gave me the birth. <laughs> and, you know, I know for some parents they would be outraged of like, how dare you? But I just went, ooh, something's going on <laughs> because that's not what she's like. But she just walked past the room and it was kind of this like F you vibe and I'm like, oof, something's gone down. So my job, in the, my, my what I did is I was curious. I kind of was like, oh, I wonder what's happened. I didn't take that personally. I didn't. I know she loves me. I know she's a beautiful, awesome human. And I also know that in that moment she's trying really hard to figure out how to process what she's feeling. And so I'm a safe place for her. So she comes and gives me the bird and I'm like, it's almost like an invitation. If we could look behind the behavior, what she's saying in that moment is, oh, God, there's so much going on, and, Mum, I really, really need your help, but I don't know how to ask for that help, and everything feels really overwhelming. Can you just come and bring some safety to me? So I kind of got up, and I was like, oof, there's some big fighting words there, baby, and you're not even saying anything. (laughs) And she kind of had a tiny little smirk on her face, but she was still angry, and I was like, come on, what's going on? Do you need to box? Should we have a pillow fight? Like I was really inviting her to, what do you need to move in your body right now? And she's like, yeah, let's have a pillow fight. So, you know, so I was like, Right, so we started pillow fighting, and she was she was pretty strong. <laughs> she was rocking me, and I'm like, "Keep going, come on!" Like I wasn't backing away from the feelings. I'm like, I can see that you're annoyed here. I can see this stuff going on, and what she's asking in that moment is, "I don't know how to move this." So we pillow fight her for a bit, and she was still angry, and then we kind of laughed a bit, and and then something else happened, and then she kind of dropped into it, and and then she had some big tears and started talking about what's going on, and. I just listened. I didn't fix. I just, I just listened and and said, "It sounds really hard, darling." And thanks for sharing with me. And and you know, in that pillow fight, in that space for her to kind of cry and let it out, you know, she kind of came to a place where her body felt more settled. She felt calmer. She wasn't looking necessarily even for a solution. She just needed to move the tensions of what had happened in her little world on that day. And that that is the same for a five-year-old. It's the same for a 13-year-old, same for a 17-year-old. Our children are constantly going, can you meet me where I'm at and not judge me and be that safe holding container for me as I'm trying to figure out how to navigate this. Now, our partners do exactly the same for us often. You think about our partner or your partner who comes and starts picking a fight with you about the way you packed the dishwasher or just random stuff. Now we're often hardwired to defend you know it. In house? Yeah. <laughs> I know the dishwasher's a thing. You either pack it like you're crazy or you pack it like meticulously, right? Usually those two people marry each other. <laughs> that explains a lot. Yeah. My husband's a meticulous, but I'm the crazy one, right? So he's, I drive him nuts. I have no doubt all the time. But here's the thing, you know, we often as adults, again, will get triggered when our partner has a goal at us for something. And, and, you know, having awareness and mindfulness is being able to watch someone's behavior and be curious and go, oof, that's, you know, that's a dishwasher. It's not worth getting fired up about. 
but there's something here. And so our job is to be super curious in this moment to go, "Mm, I wonder what's going on here and to not bite, right? To not get into the fire, to not, it only takes, (laughs) it takes two people to have a disagreement and a fight, right? One of you can actually fan the flames to make it cool. And that usually is by saying what you see. I can see you're pretty annoyed about the dishwasher. Is there something going on? No, I'd be like, nah, you just don't pack it the right way. And you're like, yeah, I can see there's a lot of energy around this dishwasher here. Like, what's happening, darling? Like, what's going on for you? So when we can meet it with a bit of love and compassion, then that is what I mean when I talk about safety. It brings an emotional safety so we can move past the anger into the upset. And when we're able to do that, that is where we get to shift the feelings and build greater connection with each other. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's amazing, isn't it? That that sense of it's almost like internal family systems where you, you're sort of telling the security guards on the perimeter, "Hey, guys, you you don't have to flare up here. I've got this," and you step in as the the actual adult in control and say, "Look, we don't have to retaliate to that because yeah. it's just not that. That's yeah. that's the the issue here. That's." But here's here's the thing, though. It's often not the adult in the conversation. It's often our wounded childhood parts that as soon as there's a threat or a fight, we are like on, right? Or as soon as we're not getting our needs met or as soon as we uh, feel threatened or as soon as we feel out of control, it's usually those kind of wounded child parts that, that enter the conversation. And that's why it can be hard to catch it because we go straight into that defense mode. And so part of what I say to people doing the work or looking at your imprints is how much of does the child actually run our life? right? And you know when the child part runs your life because you yell or because you get frustrated or you think people are idiots or they're not doing it the right way. They're all the judgment, judgmental parts that flare up, right? It's the, the embodied adult is someone who is calm and centered and can be curious and can reflect for a minute and not react. You know, they're, that's the adult part of us. But most people I work with are still in those wounded child parts because we were never shown how to heal them. Yeah. And, and I love the, the bit about it's like um, Professor Steve Peters ter- talks about reality versus reasonableness. Mm. And, and we can set such unrealistic expectations and we think it's reasonable for someone to do this but what we're not actually doing is just accepting reality and seeing things as they are and it's us that are making ourselves get all bent out of shape because we've set these unrealistic expectations i do it all the time (laughs) yeah it's really hard to catch i think and that's why one of my favorite statements ever is what am i making this mean like what what a story have i got going on around this right now and whether that's it should look this way or they should be doing this. Or, yeah, yeah. And then and it is, it's it's the mindfulness to be able to pause and go, what's what am I making this all mean here in this one? <laughs> Where are my expectations? Like and I think that's that's what we all ideally want to get to, right? As adults, because when we don't, we just take all that stuff and we project it onto others. And that's that's messy. That's yeah. really messy. One of the things I remember hearing you say was about when our kids become teenagers as well, that's a time when they can sometimes need us even more. And yet, and I've had a friend say the same thing. He said, when his kids reach teenage years, you kind of feel like, oh, I've done my work here. They're mm. kind of, they're autonomous almost. I can just let them be and I can get my, my stuff done now. And and he was like, there are times when, when they actually do come to you 
you almost have to drop everything because mm. that's when they really, really need you. But it's so tempting to just fob them off like, oh, can you give me five minutes or, you know, yeah. a bit longer. But, it, you know, I loved it when you said that, you yeah. know, that when they come to you as teenagers, then there's a real issue that, you know, they're asking yeah. for help. I love that. Uh, one of the things I often say is, you know, when your teenagers walk up to you and you're cooking dinner in the kitchen and they want to hug, like drop whatever you are doing and just hug and don't be the first to let go. Like just hold on. Not hold on because you're like, don't leave me. Hold on because, <laughs> you know, you're just like, ah, they are ready for the affection now. Like, and it's such yeah. a contrast for when you've got little kids, right, where you feel touched out and they're climbing on you all the time and they want to sleep next to you and, and you can often just feel like, oh, my God, these little people are on me. And then they start to separate a bit. You know, when they start to reach those tween years, they step back and pull back a bit. And that can feel really challenging for us because we've been like, hang on, like, you know, where is this, this intimacy in this other way? And so then it becomes more on their terms, you know, which is about when they want to enter into that sharing or that touch and that kind of stuff. And and that's why I often, whatever I was doing, if any one of my kids came up to me, I would always stop what I was doing just to embrace them or hug them or, or actually pay them attention of what was going on because, um, yes, they, you know, they physically don't need you as much. You know, it's not about getting them to sleep and brushing teeth and all those things that we do when we've got little kids, but they often need you more emotionally and they need you just to be available. And, you know, we lead very busy lives and, and you're exactly right. We can get into the mindset of like, you know, no, they don't need me as much. They're pretty independent. But I found it's about being available, right? So that, and, and I would find that they really needed me often after school and they needed to be fed and they just needed a place to kind of dump what's going on. And then always at nighttime, I mean, teenagers have got this brilliant changing their brain going on so as they get older and you know all of it changes as far as sleep you know it's often why when you're saying to your teenager at 10 at night good night darling and they're like mom can you come in here and then the next minute you're sitting there for an hour and a half on their bed yeah. they're unpacking stuff and you're like couldn't we have done this a few hours ago <laughs> i'm not good <laughs> yeah that's the time when they're like hey here's what's on my mind and my heart and that can be really tricky but you know, those moments of connection, if we can bring them and hold them, are so beneficial for our teens to know that we are there and we are listening and we've got their back. You know, it's really important. So it does shift a little bit, you know, and then, and again, it just ebbs and flows and changes in as in what what our children need over that lifetime, you know. Yeah. It's, and, you know, my kids are obviously adults now and I have to say having adult children is just the absolute best because they're just they're brilliant to hang out with and and it is and you know I think teenagers get a bad rap you know and one of the biggest things I'm, I'm a really big advocate of is 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 for parents not entering into the teenage years going this is going to be horrendous and I'm like no teenagers are amazing and they're awesome and yeah they're going to bring you challenges they're going to help you grow but see them through the lens of brilliance and awesomeness don't see them through the lens as hopeless and and you know they never listen and they do stuff because all of that is true right but we need to champion them they need to feel that we champion them and they need to feel that we love being with them because then they're more likely again to feel that trust and 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 I say to every adult who's got teenagers just think about what it was like being 14 like you know it's not easy right yeah. like just all the things that were going through your mind your body changing trying to figure out school relationships it's hard it's one of the biggest growth times we have as humans and it's one of the most confusing and you're losing brain cells at the same time <laughs> totally. and I, and I say what did what did you need when you were a teenager from your parents like if you what is it that you really really deeply wanted 
And nearly every one of them says, I just wanted them to care. I wanted them to spend time listening to me. I wanted them to make the effort to, to want to hang with me without judging. Like, you know, the, the similar themes pop up all the time is they wanted a, a parent who wasn't judging them, but it was like, Hey, I'm right beside you and, and I'm here and, and let's navigate this hard stuff together. So mm. I think a lot of us have our own teenage wounds and baggage. And really, you know, I, I always come back in any moment of parenting when we don't know what to do. I go, well, if you were your child right now, what would you want? What were some of the themes that came out when you were working as a sex educator? Because that must have been such a, I guess, a hotbed of topics, you mm-hmm. know, because of like, I guess, the way that we were brought up in our generation, completely different. Yeah. And, I mean, you must have must have had some awesome times. Oh, I loved teaching sex education to teens. It was one of my most favourite jobs. I know it sounds like people's idea of absolute horrendous, like <laughs> the worst job you could do, but it was so. I loved it. It was, um, and again, I think because I really love teens, and I and my my intent always was this: What did I want to know when I was fifteen? What do I wish an adult had sat down and shared with me that no one spoke about that I didn't know how to f- and then I had to figure out in really tricky ways. So, you know, one of the things I love, no matter who I spoke to as teens, is the first thing I'd say is there's nothing off the table. You can ask me anything and you cannot shock me. Trust me, I've been doing this long. There's nothing you can say because they're all like, oh, we're going to get on. Like, there's nothing you can say that's going to shock me. So, you know, and I think when they would read that energy, they'd be like, yeah, okay, she's, you know, she's not going to freak out if we ask her about this because I'd always get them to write anonymous questions and, you know, some kids would write fun, funny stuff and I'd always read that question and I'd go, oh, that's a good one how should I answer that guys <laughs> and I'm like it doesn't faze me because I'm like it's just they're just questions and these are bodies and and it's really important that we understand how our bodies work it's really important how we understand more about relationships how we honor ourselves honor others respect consent all that kind of stuff so for me I think the biggest thing was always like I want to be a place where they can come and actually ask all the things that they really want to know about, right? So children would ask lots about pornography and things from like anal sex to how do you break up with someone to, you know, am I pregnant if this has happened and I think I've got cancer and just like all these worries that are on their minds. And and so I used to ask all the teens I'd work with, you know, put your hand up here if you chatted to your parents about sex and usually maybe a quarter of the class would. And then I'd say, put your hand up if you feel comfortable talking to your parents about sex and even less people would put their hands up and I'd be like, what, what is the issue here? And they'd be like, oh, my parents are going to be weird about it. And I was like, okay, so if your parents weren't weird about it, would it feel easier? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, so parents are weird because we never had these conversations and, and it's hard to sometimes see your child as, you know, being a sexual being and, you know, it's, it often can feel challenging. So, you know, there's ways we can work around that. Right. And my thing was always about, I just want you to have the right and correct information so you can be safe. And you can also have a really positive, pleasurable sex life because that's actually what it's about. Right. It's, I think our generation was all about, don't get pregnant. Don't get an STI. You know, that was really drummed home to us. Right. That's what it, that was pretty much what sex ed was about. Whereas I was really passionate about, okay, how do we navigate breaking up with someone? How do we 
Um, how, what ways could we say whether we like something or not when we're doing something with someone? What are the ways that we can um, say no when we feel uncomfortable? And one of the things I would talk to the girls about particularly was about pleasure. I was like, no one was talking to them about pleasure and understanding their bodies. I mean, I didn't learn about half of that stuff till I was in my late 20s, right? And yeah. I remember being horrified going, why did no one ever teach me this? Yeah. Right? And, and like, where, where, what's the default? It's like kids are talking about porn. And, oh, and you know, that right. is not yeah. a great place to go if you want to learn about, you know, yeah. how to have a loving, intimate relationship. That's it. And, and I think this is such a great point you bring up because teenagers are always going to be curious. That has not changed, right? From our <laughs> parents' generation, people are always curious because we have sex hormones that kick in when we go through puberty. So every single part of us is hardwired to go, oh, my God, what do I do with this, right? <laughs> And so when we were younger and we didn't have the internet, you know, we would try and, I mean, I used to read Dolly Doctor, the sealed section to try and get information and maybe somebody's parent had a Playboy magazine or like, you know, we were, we were hungry for information. And so you then just spoke to your friends and it was your peers giving you information, which was often incorrect, right? Yeah. So we were like, no idea. And, and yet now, and I think why the landscape is quite dangerous is because we have pornography. And when teenagers are, are curious, then the default is going to be, well, I'll just go to the internet and have a look. Now, what we know is that, you know, pornography is a billion dollar industry. It is there to suck people in. It is like a lot of the big things that happen in our world. It is not for our best interest at all or for our health and so therefore children are going to watch that or teenagers are going to watch that and go well that's what sex looks like sex looks like you know no consent it looks like no body hair it looks like these types of bodies it looks like rough sex like that's what they're watching going that's what sex is and so then we often see you know boys portray what they see as and we see girls going oh it's all about someone else's pleasure and so I think these are really important conversations to be having with our children teenagers around the impacts of pornography there's a brilliant website that i always like to talk about whenever i'm talking about sex ed called culturereframed.org and it's an english website and it is a brilliant website that has a free course that you can do on how to talk to your children about pornography the average age of exposure to kids to porn is 10 years of age which is often very alarming right and it's not because they're looking for it it's because they stumble across it by accident or they might be shown it and we have to start having conversations with our children younger and it's not we're just talking about that there's stuff on the internet that isn't for children to see and it can feel very confusing um and it can and it can feel sometimes distressing seeing it and if you do see it come and tell me and you'll never be in trouble and and you know it's and you'll still be able to watch the ipad afterwards that's the big reason why kids don't come and disclose it because they're worried they won't be yeah. able to watch the ipad um so culture reframed is a brilliant resource to help parents understand how to discuss it and how to talk about it and i think my biggest message always around sex ed to parents is this you want to be an askable parent you want to be a parent where your kids can go oh, i heard this word what does it mean or you know kids are talking about this what is that or how do bodies work and you know how do you make a baby and like our children are often very curious and we want to be the type of parent that can go hey great question all right, let's have a chat. Or how about I get you some books and we'll look at those books and we'll talk through them. You know, books are a brilliant way to help children understand. There's some brilliant resources out there of books for um, 
for to use you know to help our kids understand great picture books great books that are age appropriate discussions and i think really when we're talking about sex ed what we want to come back to is how do we help our kids feel safe enough to have these conversations with us how do we make sure we give them the right information so that they are equipped to then enter into this part of becoming an adolescence with information knowledge their own inner power that's what we want you know we want them to feel not awkward and horrible and getting in situations that don't feel good. We want them to know how to respect a strong yes or a strong no. We want them to know how to say no if it doesn't feel good. We want them to know that both people's, you know, mutual pleasure is important. We want them to understand um, the implications of having sex, you know, and, and about safety physically, emotionally, you know, all those kind of things. So, there's so much to it and I think um, it's really important as parents as uncomfortable as we can be around it, that we get comfortable with it. Because, yeah, because yeah. the, the other side of that is is we start overlaying shame on it. You yes. know, if they do experiment and something, they're like, oh, and start to feel all this shame and I'll be judged by my parents and, mm-hmm. and that's the last thing you want. And it's so true and I think that was one of the big reasons why I actually ended up teaching sex ed. It wasn't because I was like, that's what I want to do. It was because my son, I think when he was like 13 or 14, you know, when he was going through puberty and I had these moments of like, oh, my God, have I taught him enough and is he going to be respectful in the world? And I had a massive freak out about it all. (laughs) I was like, I want to know more about how to do this well. And because I was a childbirth educator at the time, I ended up at – his secondary school asked if I'd come and do a talk to the year nines about birth, right? And so I was like, yeah, great. So I went and did a whole birth class for them because they were doing it in science. And then and then I just said to the teacher, are you talking to the kids about porn and consent? And he's like, nah. And I'm like, oh, my God, we need to be. And and I'm like, can I come and do some classes for them? And they're like, yep, come on in. And they were like, <laughs> please. And then I started doing it and then other people started hearing about it and then I just ended up doing it because I was like, this is information that needs to be known. And probably one of the driving factors is that, you know, I felt a lot of shame through those teenage years. I didn't feel like I could talk about it. And I was like, I do not want kids to feel like that. I do not want my own children to feel like that. I want them to feel comfortable in their bodies. I want them to to know they have power and understand respect and all this beautiful thing about being a human and, and relationships. And so, you know, that's what actually drove me to do it, to, to be the person that teenagers could come to so they could ask these questions and get the right information. My poor children, they often say to me, mom, why did you have to teach sex ed classes to my late year level? Because <laughs> <laughs> no, I love you so much. <laughs> one day you'll think it's cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, Lael, I, I love the work you're doing. Like it's, it's so good. I appreciate so much what you're putting out into the world. And so I just want to say a massive thank you for spending time and talking with me today. It's been so much fun and so illuminating and I can't wait for your second book. So uh, keep, keep up the great work. And, um, yeah, I guess, um, can you just explain quickly about the courses that you run as well? Yeah, amazing. Thank you. Um, so on my website, which is laylstone.com.au, I always joke that I'm the only Laylstone in on Google at the moment. So if you Google me, you get me, which is pretty awesome. Um, so on my website, um, I have lots of just like two and a half hour kind of webinars on lots of things like, you know, how to deal with anger and boundaries. I've got things about big feelings for kids. I've got a great webinar on how to talk to your kids about sex. I've got a good one about teenagers. So I've got lots of little courses, one-off things you can do. 
I have a, a couple, uh, sorry, a course called Aware Parenting for Couples, which is for parents and again, kids of any age that take you through lots of different um, of the tools, kind of some of the stuff we've talked about today, and really invites you as a couple to do the course together to explore your own stories and imprints. Like, how how did this happen for you when you were a child? And and it's a really wonderful way as a couple to look at and understand each other's story and why we respond the way we do. And, and it's about helping you get on the same page to raise your kids. So that's just a, um, that's a course on there that you can do anytime. And then three times a year, I run immersions, which are eight week courses, which kind of I do live where you get to do it with a group of other parents. And it's about diving into a lot of what we've talked about today our imprints around anger and tears and our relationship to joy and and trust and self-care and boundaries and all those kind of things and it's um it's a really powerful course i think this is maybe the i've just started one i think it's maybe the 14th round i've done of it and i just see the most amazing transformation for parents because it's it's kind of cutting through all the noise to the bottom line of like where was this for you and how does it turn up in your life and how do we work towards changing it and and um, and, and giving you lots of tools along the way, which is really powerful. So I, I just feel as parents we all need support, we all need mentoring, we all, you know, nobody knows what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. You know, and there were plenty of times in raising my kids I was like, God, I wish someone could just show me the way to do it. And, you know, I, I had my kids before any of my friends had children you know so I was really I felt like oh god I've got to do this first and make all the mistakes and mess up and do all the the tricky stuff which I've done plenty of to get to where I want to be and so um I I often think that I you know I work with lots of parents who've got younger kids and I'm like I'll be the person you know to you that I really needed when I was younger which is to remind (laughs) you it's hard and you're doing a good job and be compassionate to yourself and and you know there's lots of really beautiful tools that we can use to stay connected to your kids and get them to brush their teeth <laughs> <laughs> well for that alone thank you so much Leo. <laughs> i know what i'll be doing tonight but um yeah thanks again this has been wonderful and uh, i can't wait to um see what other work you push out into the world thank you so much thanks for having me well thanks for listening i hope you found that as insightful and inspiring as i did if you'd like to find out more about Lael's work and parenting courses, I'll put a link in the show notes at thedadmindset.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify and leave a review or a comment. Sharing the show or your favourite episode with friends or on social media is, of course, awesome and really helpful. For podcast updates, please subscribe to the newsletter, which you can find along with all the show notes at thedadmindset.com. Well, that's all from me for now. Hope you have a great week. And as always, enjoy your caffeinated beverage. (laughs) 